and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to two interviews I did by myself. First, with Melissa Anderson, the amazing film critic, whose first book is called Inland Empire, and it's about the David Lynch film. And then after that, with the artist Pippa Garner, who has a retrospective up here in Los Angeles at Joan. Oh, that sounds good. Kate, what is your relationship to the David Lynch film, Inland Empire? I read Melissa's book, which I loved, um, and I tried to watch the film, but it wasn't available easily on any of the streaming services that I subscribe to. So I didn't end up watching it, but I felt like I watched some clips of it online. I think I got the gist. I think I got the gist. I don't definitely, (laughs) I don't think I needed to watch a really abstract, strange two hour movie to understand uh, Melissa's book, which was definitely focuses more on Laura Dern. Oh, the the brilliant, brilliant performance of Laura Dern and the career arc of Laura Dern. I'm a big Laura Dern fan as well. Are you? Yeah, me too. I actually recently watched a movie she was in when she was, I think, a teenager. It was a movie that was an adaptation of a short story. Oh, yeah. Smooth talk. We discuss it. We discuss it. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I recently watched that movie and Laura Dern has been very cool for a very long period of time. I've never actually seen that film. Although, as I was telling Melissa, I did act in that scene when I was a young actor in acting class, the scene where Laura Dern is being pursued by this guy and he's at the door trying to get her to come out. Yeah. And it's like a staple of, it's a staple scene of young actors. So I acted in it. I watched people do it over and over again. I don't know why I haven't seen this movie. It is available now on the Criterion Collection app or channel or however you can access the Criterion Collection. Yeah. But alas, Inland Empire is not. So have to find that elsewhere. Or don't and just listen to this conversation with Melissa Anderson. Let's do that. Let's listen to the conversation. Okay, great. I'm so happy to be speaking with the critic Melissa Anderson today. Melissa is one of my all-time favorite writers on film, and you can read her spirited, erudite reviews regularly in places such as Art Forum, Book Forum, and Four Columns, where she's also an editor. From 2015 through 2017, she was the senior film critic for The Village Voice, RIP. She joins us today to discuss her first book, Inland Empire, another volume in the very excellent Fireflies Press Decadent series, which revisits seminal films from the 2000s. A Story of a Woman in Trouble, Imlin Empire, directed by David Lynch and released in 2006, is a bold choice since, as Melissa points out, to try and make sense of its plot, quote, would be to replicate the tediousness and pointlessness of narrating a dream. Instead, the book concerns itself most with the film's star, Laura Dern, an electrifyingly expressive performer who's worked in the industry since she was a child. Using the whole of Dern's career and many of her collaborations with Lynch, Melissa explores Inland Empire as the work not so much of an auteur, but of an actor, reading the film through Dern and finding many poignant things to say about disintegration and desperation, victimization and agency, the possibilities of the female gaze, and the dark side of Hollywood along the way. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Kate, thank you so much for having me. 
Maybe we could start just by having you tell us about when you first saw Inland Empire and what was behind your thought process for choosing to write about it for the Decadent series. My first viewing of Inland Empire is forever ingrained on my brain. I saw it, it was announced as a very last minute press screening for the 2006 New York Film Festival. In fact, I think it was so last minute that they held the press screening on a Saturday, which is very rare for press screenings during the New York Film Festival. It was a Saturday afternoon and I went with my girlfriend and we saw this phantasmagoric, totally destabilizing three-hour film. I was very shook up by it. And so I guess that helps me explain why I chose this as the film to write about for the Decadent Editions series. I knew, well, I was limited in choosing a film made between 2000 and 2009, as the title of the series implies. And I knew in order to devote the amount of time it would take to write a monograph of at least 15,000 words, it would have to be a film that I would not mind revisiting over and over and over and over again. So perversely, I chose Inland Empire, because even though it is a very strange and bewildering work, it has Laura Dern in it in almost every scene. And so to try to make sense of what she does in the film, I thought would be a great pleasure. And I'm happy to report it was. In my attempt to try to make sense of her astonishing talents, that really was a great joy. And had you been a big Laura Dern fan pre-Inland Empire? I mean, had you been following her career since you started watching films and writing about them? Yes, I had always been a fan. Well, you know, I wouldn't say that I was her most ardent admirer, but anything I'd ever seen her in made an incredible impression. I mean, starting with was the first Laura Dern film I ever saw. It was probably Blue Velvet, which I must have seen. That film came out in 1986. So yeah, I probably saw it upon its first release. And yeah, I think most people who love movies, it's axiomatic that they will love Laura Dern because she really is one of the most dynamic, unpredictable, limber, expressive performers of, I'd say, the past 40 years. To me, it's so much about her body. I mean, just how yeah. like you call her like Linguini. Linguini thin. Yeah. And, <laughs> Linguini and as thin. pliant as, well, I guess once Linguini is somewhat cooked, like an al dente Linguini <laughs> noodle. Yeah. I think it's her physicality and of course, like it's her face, the expressiveness of her face. Is there anything else about the way she acts that, you know, mesmerizes you that you could point out? Very few performers are as great as holding silence as she is. And that really comes to the fore in one of the opening scenes of Inland Empire during that incredible meeting with the strange neighbor played by Grace Zabriskie, another David Lynch regular. So this unnamed character played by Grace Zabriskie in Inland Empire, she speaks in a heavy Slavic accent and she comes to Nikki Grace, who's the one of the characters played by Laura Dern in Inland Empire comes to her opulent mansion and starts speaking to her in these bizarre riddles. And most of the scene is done in close-up. And so whenever the camera cuts to Laura Dern's reactions to this 
bizarre stranger who's just shown up in her house. Dern just has this incredible ability to time just how long she needs to remain sitting. And with her pupils, she seems to be able to dilate and constrict at will, trying to make sense of this bizarre person sitting across from her. And I mean, there are immense physical demands made of her in the Inland Empire. Actually, I guess you could say that about any project she's ever made with Lynch, but limiting the conversation specifically the Inland Empire. So there are amazing physical demands made of her, chief among those demands being how long she has to remain silent, how much she has to communicate through this, as we were discussing, her incredibly pliant body and face, how much she has to communicate non-verbally and how much what she's communicating non-verbally is abject fear and terror. That's very difficult to do over and over and over again. I thought it was an interesting point that you say that she kind of grounds Lynch's arcana in real emotion so that the film is like a dream and it goes everywhere and she becomes multiple people and what's happening is unclear, but that her acting is very real, that she reacts in a very believable way or poignant way. Exactly. As you alluded to in your very kind introduction, when I set out to write about Inland Empire, I knew that the absolute last thing I would ever want to do is try to provide a cogent, coherent exegesis of this film, which is by far the most free associative in all of Lynch's filmography. Lynch himself is a very discursive free associative filmmaker. And so there are plenty of wiki sites devoted to decoding all of the quote-unquote mysteries of Inland Empire and anything else that Lynch has made. And, you know, all due respect to those people, and I will admit sometimes I have to look at some of these wiki pages to help me make some sense of this aforementioned arcana. But yeah, so I knew this would be the absolute worst way to go about entering this film. But Dern, I just sort of boiled it down to the most fundamental elements of the film. One of those being, who is the protagonist? And when the protagonist is somebody who is spectacular as a performer, is Laura Dern, that helps make the film legible. Even somebody who's seen Inland Empire now multiple times, it's very difficult to recapitulate the plot. But I can, in great detail, describe to you what Laura Dern's many avatars in the film do in any given scene. So yeah, in this way, she makes this baffling production, this baffling project, which never had a completed script. She makes it lucid. She tethers us to some kind of reality. When you bring up the concept of actorism, I was blown away. I thought, God, that's so brilliant. But it's also such an intuitive way to look at film. I mean, how would you not look at film as created in part by the performances in them? I was wondering at what point of the project did you kind of come to that theory and maybe more about it and just how it shaped the way you wrote the book? Well, that brilliant concept of actorism, I wish I could take credit for that, but that credit goes solely to the terrific curator and critic Dave Kerr, who shortly after he became a curator of film at MoMA, devised a series under that name, actorism. And when I first read that term and read more about the series, I thought, this is truly ingenious. And it really helped me. I realized that, wow, I think this is how I often approach 
films. I am someone who, in my film criticism, I will probably spend more time analyzing a performer than I will certain camera movements or directorial flourishes. So yes, Dave Kerr's notion of actorism, which I first became familiar with in 2014, has been incredibly helpful. Another phrase that when I first read it really struck me with such force because I realized, oh, this also seems to really speak to my cinephilia is somebody who I also mentioned in the monograph. And that is the great gay cult film critic, Boyd McDonald, who, when his collection of film criticism, Cruising the Movies, was reissued in 2015, I had the great fortune to not only read that, but review it. And he has this incredible line, very simple line, which is simply, motion pictures are for people who like to watch women. And I thought, I feel seen. I feel very seen. And also keep in mind, this is written by somebody a very flamboyantly gay man who often in his film reviews, he was talking about actors' butts, the size of their cocks, the size of their bulges, but who wrote some of the greatest tributes to actresses I've ever read. Like in Cruising the Movies, what he has to say about Gloria Graham or Jane Russell. So that also acted Boyd McDonald's very lavender, very homosexual cinephilia was also incredibly helpful and for you in thinking about how to write about Laura Dern, how to write about my appreciation for her, how to really analyze what it is that she's doing and why it's so magical. Is the idea of actorism that at least it's a collaboration, but does it ever veer into more that, you know, the real person who is creating the film is the performer? Could you look at it that way as opposed to like, in this case, like David Lynch is really takes a backseat to Laura Dern, or is it more about a collaboration between the two of them? I mean, certainly in this instance, in no way do I wish to denigrate the great accomplishment of David Lynch, who is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that Inland Empire is solely the creation of Laura Dern. That would be nonsensical. But to think of Inland Empire, perhaps as a joint collaboration between auteur and actor, and an actor who has long been associated with him, somebody who's been working with him since she was a teenager. They do have a long history together. Yeah, I guess, you know, that comes up a lot the ways in which, you know, maybe she's his favorite blonde or favorite mm-hmm. woman in trouble. This is a, a genre that David Lynch returns to again and again, the woman in trouble. And I was wondering if that specific type of movie appeals to you personally. And also just in this case, especially because Laura Dern has been in Hollywood for so long, what does Inland Empire say about feminine experience or like feminine experience in Hollywood. And then maybe we could talk you know, more about agency and victimization after that. <laughs> yes, this is definitely a theme that runs throughout his work. And David Lynch, obviously, is somebody who's very influenced by perhaps the signature director of Women in Trouble, and that is Alfred Hitchcock. And so, yeah, I will admit to having a definite predilection for f- filmmakers kind of indebted to Hitchcock the way that Lynch is often reworking Vertigo or Marnie, I find to be quite fascinating, very generative. Something 
that one who, like myself, identifies as a feminist does really have to struggle with. But as I mentioned somewhere in the monograph, there are scenes of intense brutality against women, physical violence against women in Inland Empire and many other Lynch productions. But I think in the end that he is a filmmaker who has a great deal of empathy toward women, who I think is very, very aware of the fact that misogyny is a worldwide and probably timeless scourge. And since Inland Empire and the film with which it forms a kind of diptych, Mulholland Drive, are both about actresses. And I find these two films to be probably the most compassionate looks at what Hollywood does to women. I find they are naughty film, naughty, I mean, K-N-O-T-T-Y, as in tangled up. They are not sunny films. They are not, they're difficult. They're sometimes difficult to watch and difficult to think about. But in the end, I would much rather try to sit with these difficulties, untangle what I think is happening in the films than have very easy to digest, very uncomplicated narratives about women who triumph in the end. And that comes up, you know, in relationship to another film that Laura Dern made when she was just a teenager as well called Smooth Talk. Yes. Which I regretfully have not seen, but keep meaning to watch. But I'm familiar with this scene because I actually remember doing it when I was young, when I took an acting class. You had to recreate that scene? Yes, I think I definitely did that. The scene at the door, this famous scene where this guy's trying to get her to go on a drive. We'll have to have a separate Zoom (laughs) to discuss that. I'll tell you all about that another time. Yeah, but so I know the kind of the tone and the fear and the excitement and the ambiguity of that scene, Mm -hmm. let's say. And it sounded like in the recent years, Laura Dern's kind of come down on the side of thinking that that film, I don't know, disavowing it, but certainly feeling like it might've been exploitative in some way or that it was a dark story that she wasn't, couldn't, didn't want to keep ambiguous, like you're saying these Lynch films are. And so I'm, I'm wondering why that film, why you think that film is something she wanted to distance herself from where as the Lynch, she's okay, you know, staying in that ambiguity. Okay, this is an incredible question. One that I really cannot, that I myself admit in the monograph, I can't make sense of it myself. And with Smooth Talk in particular, I guess just to provide a bit of a chronology for the listeners, Smooth Talk came out in 1985. So this is the year before she starts working with Lynch. Smooth Talk, in my mind, is really one of the greatest films about female adolescent sexuality and the kind of film, because it has so many ambiguities, I don't think would ever be made today. But it is based on a short story by Joyce Carol Oates. It was directed by the great Joyce Chopra. And in it, Laura Dern plays a high school sophomore who is very eager for sexual experiences. Well, she's both very eager for sexual experiences and terrified of them. And there's an older character played by Treat Williams who tries to seduce her. And there's a pivotal scene in the final third of the film where he's able to sort of talk her out of her house and come for a ride in his souped up Cadillac, some kind of 1950s car, to go for a ride with him. Then the camera cuts to 
there's a car parked in a grassy field and there are no humans in it. So we are led to believe that Laura Dern's character and Treat Williams' character are off somewhere. We do not know what happens. It's left incredibly ambiguous. At the time that the film came out and Laura Dern was doing press and some journalists asked her how she felt about the scene, which it was clear that her character had been raped. She said, oh, no, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. We have no idea what happened. And so that's what she said at the time. And then in this really fantastic profile that the critic and novelist Christine Smallwood did about Laura Dern that came out in the New York Times Magazine in 2019, they started talking about that film and talking about that scene in particular. And this is when Laura Dern really begins to distance herself from it. And she says something like, oh yes, that's what I said at the time, but I would never say that now. And maybe I, she basically admits, I don't think I knew what I was doing. And so at the time of this Times profile, which would have been reported in 2018, 2019, we're now at least a year into the Me Too movement. Laura Dern by this point has become very active in Times Up. So she's now one of several actresses who are trying to call attention to the ghastly abuses in Hollywood, which is great. These need to be called attention to. But there's it's a very strange moment for me that she would want to put some distance between her and this film, which I find to be an incredible, honest portrayal of the absolute murky emotions of adolescence. Why she's distancing herself from that. But yes, as you said, Kate, and as I discussed somewhat in the monograph, but the work that she's done with Lynch, which includes Blue Velvet, which includes Wild at Heart, two movies in which there are some really intense scenes of sexual violence against women. Lynch, she has always lauded as, you know, our greatest filmmaker. He's an amazing artist. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think she's ever put any distance between herself and Lynch or even called into question some of the scenes that he's included. All of which is fine. I do not wish in any way to sound as though I'm castigating Laura Dern for not doing that. It's just, as you point out, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma, I guess. I mean, it only leads me maybe to think that something about the way that they work together or just her indebtedness to him as someone who has, you know, given her these parts over the years. At times, maybe her career was a little more fallow and has continued to believe in her overrides anything else. I mean, you kind of talk about that in the book that the Renaissance that's happening oh, that's now. That's a tedious term, yeah. <laughs> you know, or even that this Oscar that she got for Marriage Story, a movie that I truly despise so much. I hate it Extreme, so much. same. Another oh, Zoom. I'll talk all about that. I too, know. Kate. We'll add that to our list. You know, where I thought she did a great job, but it was like, oh, she got the Oscar for that. Whereas, you know, Inland Empire possibly or other films she may have the performances that she gave may have reached more operatic heights that should have been lauded. So there's something about this moment that you referenced too, where she's kind of like moved into a different kind of escalon of stardom that maybe her performance in Inland Empire wouldn't have been possible right, right. now. Yeah, I you're right. Because Twin Peaks, The Return aired in 2017. So just before the cresting of the Renaissance right before the high holy years of the hashtag Renaissance. Yes. I wondered what it was like 
for you working on this book at this time and just how much I can imagine being a film critic over the last two years, it seems like such a complete reversal of, of a lifestyle and a way of life in so many ways, but maybe it had some good aspects too. I mean, I'm wondering, maybe talk about writing the book and then also your other work as a regular film critic and how it changed since the pandemic. An excellent question. Most of the, well, no, the entire first draft of the monograph was written between March and August of 2020, when things were a little topsy-turvy in the world. The bulk of that first draft was written in June, July, and August. And at the time, my girlfriend and I had just moved house. We left the apartment I had been living in for 20 years to a bigger place. And I, like everybody else in the world, was often freaking out, having a million hypochondriacal spirals a day. And as a writer, most of the things that I write are between 1,000 and 2,500 words. I was very nervous about even being able to hit 15,000 words, which I know is not a lot, but for me, it seemed impossible to do. But so to, as a way to assuage my anxiety about writing, and I guess also as a way to assuage my anxiety about a pathogen and the collapse of the world, I went about it very systematically. I just said, okay, my deadline is this date. I have this many days, divide words into days. And so I came up with some calculus where if I wrote just 300 words a day, I would be able to hit my deadline. And so that's exactly what I did. <laughs> and really, I'm not trying to equate myself with the genius David Lynch, but much like the way he did Inland Empire, the writing itself was very free associative, just because I knew I could just sit in front of my laptop all day waiting for the muse to strike, and then, but I would never get anything done. So I just thought, okay, open the computer, you have a thought, just type it out. And then maybe that will lead to another thought. And that's how it progressed. And I learned the great beauty and value of the line break. In the monograph, you'll notice like a little cute little symbol. I think it's just a little circle and a line space that will indicate to the reader, okay, now we're going to have a complete jump in thought. And I thought, I mean, I hadn't planned it to mirror the structure of the film, but quite serendipitously, that's how it came about. So I will say that quite paradoxically, watching over and over and over again this deranging film and writing about it helped me keep it together, you know, because it just, I had a project to work on when case numbers were spiking and variants were taking over the world and Donald J. Trump was still in office. Yeah, Inland Empire helped me keep it together. <laughs> oh, the irony. That's very, it's <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I loved talking to you, Kate. Thank you. That was Melissa Anderson. Her new book is called Inland Empire. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Melissa Anderson, whose new book is Inland Empire. We now turn to our conversation with Pippa Garner. I'm honored to be speaking with the artist and inventor Pippa Garner today. 
Born in Chicago in 1942, Garner's artistic career spans six decades. Her work is known to satirize American consumer culture with a range of drawings and ideas for outlandish, and yet with this country's zeal for novelty, completely plausible products, custom furniture, and things like the world's most fuel-efficient car, which is actually a bicycle set inside the frame of a miniature Honda. In the 1970s, she collaborated with the media collective Ant Farm, and in the 1980s, as Philip Garner, she published books such as Better Living Catalog, 62 Absolute Necessities for Contemporary Survival, and Utopia or Bust, Products for the Perfect World. She also made regular appearance on the talk show circuit in character as a small town inventor, presenting some of her many gadgets, like a crop top business suit and an umbrella whose canopy is constructed of palm fronds to the audience. In recent years, her work has found wider appreciation after being mostly ignored by the art world. She joins us on the occasion of her exhibition, Immaculate Misconception, a retrospective currently on view at Joan in Los Angeles, which brings together dozens of newly realized pieces alongside older work, like the Chevro Lounge, the trunk of a classic car that's been converted into a couch. Thanks so much for being here, Pippa. Well, delightful, thank you. I was, thought we could talk just about what was on your mind when you first started making your work. Did you feel that you wanted to comment on the atmosphere, the American atmosphere in which you were raised? Did you feel like you were doing something straightforward or was it more ambiguous? I think it was just a matter of uh, the old cliche being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I was born in 42 and by the time I when I was first approached uh, adolescence, I was, uh, you know, it was the early 1950s, and I, the adolescence is a time when you really learn to connect with the culture. Up to that point, it's it's um, just the home, the family, and somehow uh, at that time also, the the culture was undergoing an interesting transition because, you know, the the notion of consumerism. Um, started then, really. The, the, the fact, that's when the, ter the term was invented. It didn't exist prior to the 50s. Uh, the assembly line was invented in 1914, or put in effect in 1914, and that was the beginning of the consumer age, um, technically, but then it was totally derailed because of the depression for 10 years, the two world wars, and so forth. So it, te it, it teased uh, the culture that, you know, here was what, something you could have. You could have, you know, if you wanted 100,000 can openers or 50 cars or whatever, as long as the assembly line kept going, it, it was unlimited. Very interesting sort of patriarchal symbol, the, the, the assembly line. Some raw materials that get formed in over a, a progressive stretch get formed into uh, uh, some sort of object, like an automobile, which is then spewed off the end of the line. So, uh, but all of that was was uh, in people's minds because, you know, they knew about the potential for that, but, but they couldn't access the results of it until the 50s. Plus, the, you know, the, the fact that people were so fed up with wars and other types of disasters that it was a really time when people wanted to have a, a fun, enjoy life, have anything that would make life uh, better. And, and one of the key terms was uh, easy living, um, push button living is another one. You know, make it, make, take, the, take the work out of everything. Any, here's these uh, appliances. No, nobody had appliances early 
up to that point that were automatic in any way. So that's when I became aware of that and also completely sucked into it. You know, I was right there, uh, a complete victim to all the advertising and the the automobile in particular, because it was a symbol of freedom, you know, and everybody at that time thought of, um, you know, you, you could easily, people were mostly, there wasn't much, urban, urban sprawl hadn't started yet. So even living in a, in a fairly large town, you could get out of it pretty easily. And there was always a surrounding countryside that was very accessible. It was just fields with cows and streams and just hills and beauty nothing like the congestion we have today. So I was just um, a, a, a potential uh, classic consumer, you know, get, absorbing all these new things. Oh, what's next? What's next? But I also had an, um, a side that didn't connect with the culture. I was a very poor student. I somehow couldn't, uh, my teenage years were, were de largely depressing and, and I felt that I was, somehow off key. I, I couldn't quite uh, fit into the things that everybody did. I try and some somebody inside of me would say, no, you can't do that. And that was a little sort of um, seed, I guess, that started to affect my vision of consumerism and, and, and made me see the absurd side of it and, and feel like it was, I still loved it, but I wanted to play with it rather than you know, I didn't take the thing seriously. And they also, the other thing too, was that things lost their value so quickly during that time, because there was, like I say, the whole cycle of what's the next big thing, um, which is a later expression, but it's applied back then. Uh, <clears throat> new, new products were immediately made thrift shop material by the next generation that had some gimmick. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because we think of that as being kind of a something uh, that's more contemporary, but this uh, planned obsolescence. What yeah. Apple, what Apple does with all of its products. I mean, that's interesting. You were even noticing it then, and and you yeah. did design cars at one point, right? Or you were started off uh, as a car designer. Uh, when I went to Art Center, which was now the Art Center College of Design, it was the Art Center School when I went there in Hollywood. It's now a big fancy place out in Pasadena was uh, considered to be the best school for designers. I started to think maybe I, I wanted to be an artist in some way. And uh, my parents were very conventional middle class. My father was uh, in the advertising business and said, okay, you can be an artist, but you have to be a commercial artist. So they, they were the ones that discovered Art Center. And uh, I uh, went there and was completely overtaken with this idea that okay, the, pur the purpose of the work was to actually create a market or to, to sell things, it was marketing. So you had to design something that would get the any you know average person interested. So somehow that again added to my sense of absurdity to the whole thing. And I started to do things that were satirical. Uh, I just couldn't help it. It wasn't, I wasn't really even thinking of myself as an artist so much as just, okay, I have this idea in my head, I'm gonna do it. That was all I ever meant. I never thought about posterity or, or having a retrospective like I have now. I'm sort of retrophobic with that because I want to keep doing new things. But all of that, I just I just started doing these satirical things while I was still a student, and 
ended up getting kicked out for that because it was against the uh, school policy and the school was getting a lot of funding from General Motors and other major uh, corporations that would then hire the graduates and I, I was uh, I was uh, was off. I wasn't part of the their their uh, uh, way of doing things. So then I was I was forced to find my own means of support. And I started. I did get. I got a gig working as a toy designer for a few months in Playa del Rey. And then somehow got under the idea. I kept seeing LA at that time was interesting. It's it's become it takes itself very seriously now, just like any major world center. But at that time. It was still really naive. People did weird things. Like I found a, a, a house in, in, in Hollywood area. Somebody painted all black. I mean, who would paint their house black? Only here in this town. And then there was stuff that people did with their cars. You'd see a, um, a Cadillac cut off made into a pickup truck just with a hacksaw. So it was all rough and crude and a bunch of stuff piled in the back. And I kept seeing those things uh, as I was driving by, and I thought, this is, I've got to document this somehow. This is an amazing moment somehow that has to be, it won't last forever. Uh, LA team seemed totally unsustainable then as it does now. And so I got a bicycle. I hadn't ridden a bike since I was a little kid because I could take my, put my Nikon around my neck and uh, pedal around doing whatever I was doing, the errands or whatever I was going anyways, and then something caught, caught, out, caught me out of the corner of my eye, some crazy thing, um, an altar that someone had made on their front yard with uh, all out of automobile hubcaps. I mean, that's the kind of thing you saw, and nobody paid any attention to it because it was just L.A. And so I started photographing that. So for 20 years, I did this photo documentary with my bicycle. I could just get up, you know, ride up on the sidewalk and get the camera on, take a snap and be gone uh, that I couldn't do with a car. I mean, would you say that that influenced you uh, more than whatever kind of contemporary art scene was here at the at the time? Um, were you looking at other artists or was it mostly about this kind of uh, juncture of, you know, popular culture and eccentricity? You know, after I was out of school, I lived in Spain for a while. I lived in London for a couple of years. And yeah, I was involved with the local art world, world then, but not while I was early at an art center. It was pretty much just my own amusement and things that I just felt uh, an impulse to do. I didn't know why. I didn't know where they were going to end up. You know, I could make a, a pair of bookends by cutting a toaster in half and putting weights on it. And I thought, well, okay, that's that idea. I could see, I could visualize it in my head. Now I've done it. It's out of my head. Something else would pop in. I'd go on to that and not even care if somebody took that or if it got trashed or whatever. So I documented most of my stuff photographically, but I didn't really have any sense of, of um, being part of the so-called art world until I uh, started to attract some attention with that. And, but it, that was still very early. I mean, this is a different age now. You know, if you, if you did things for magazines, that was considered trashy. By fine artists. And on the other hand, I thought, well, the things I'm doing are attracting attention. I'm getting gigs from magazines. Uh, why would I, you know, it's just it, the whole idea of, of having something seen by 100,000 people or more 
as opposed to a handful that go into a gallery. I really kind of like the, uh, from an ego standpoint, the idea of having that kind of exposure. So even though I kind of felt a little guilty about it almost, I thought there was a point, there was a time when I really felt sort of drawn in either direction. I thought if I, if I do this, I'm losing that. If I do that, I'm losing this. And I didn't know quite where to align myself. And it was, that was during the uh, 80s. I guess mostly, and uh, I started to, but I did know quite a few artists then, and uh, hung out with them, and you know went to artist parties and so forth, and so I was kind of on the fringe, but never, you know, I had a few shows in in uh, small galleries or things, not not uh, solo shows, but just things came up now and then, and I would I did everything that came up, you know, with the magazine thing, if it was a gallery, you know, whatever it was, I, I did. Would you have fabricated every idea you had, had money and time not been an object or was it more for you just about, you know, the pleasure of having the idea of having so many ideas? Um, I mean, I think that's the interesting yeah. thing about your work is that it's satirical, but there's obviously such a pleasure in, um, in the inventiveness of it. Well, it was kind of a challenge to me when an idea would literally pop into my head. And I really believe that in every cultural movement, there's probably a sort of down-home component. The uh, idea light bulb goes off, of, doesn't just go off over the heads of people that have had um, extensive education and sophisticated uh, experiences. It can also go off over the head of a postal worker in Alabama. It just pop, pop, pop. There's the idea. What is it? What would a robot look like? Uh, that somebody that was just completely out of the uh, technology side of it be able to wake up some morning and say, "I got to make a robot." I think it was uh, like you know when I, when the idea would pop into my head, and I considered myself sort of a maybe between the two in a way because I wasn't exactly I wasn't really a folk artist. I had some background in art, but I wasn't really a connoisseur of that by any means. And yet, so one example was uh, I, I got the idea, there was a one particular car. I thought, wow, I wonder if I can get, take the body off 59 Chevy and put it on backwards. And then once that had gotten, the idea had gotten at that point, it was, um, I was the addiction when it set in. I knew I had to do it. I don't know if it was possible. I was living in San Francisco at the time. So I found a used 59 Chevy, two-door sedan, and uh, I um, found a garage that uh, I could rent for to do the work, and it took, uh, I think, a month and a half or something, but I actually took the body off and put it on backwards. And I don't know if you saw that. There are pictures of it at the show. But uh, that was an example, too. And then when that was all done, we, we photographed it. There was a feature in Esquire on that. When, when that project was all over, I had it shredded, I had it destroyed. And that was when I was also, um, when I met Ant Farm during that period. So I didn't really think in terms of the... Um, so why did you have it destroyed? Uh, it seemed like that was all I needed to do was have, have it uh, on the road for um, a couple of weeks. I drove it across the Golden Gate Bridge several times and... and we had some great pictures of that where there's another car is right behind and it looks like they're just about to have a horrendous head-on collision and it just was over for me i wanted to i wanted that out of my mind out of my life so i could move on and i was kind of a, 
I was a hippie at the time too. I didn't want any possessions. You know, lived out more or less out of a backpack in a friend's uh, place in Mill Valley in California. Um, and uh, it just was, you know, if I had it here now, I would have preserved it one way or another, I think. But um, uh, maybe also part of a slightly negative, sort of self-destructive part of my personality that said, you, you did all this work, now wreck it, destroy it. You know, there's always something in the back, background that I didn't quite understand that it was a carryover from childhood where I would sort of spoil the fun for myself. But we did, it was good. I'm glad it happened that way because we did what we had to do and it could have been horrifically dangerous. So uh, fortunately, it didn't cause any accidents. I wanted to ask about um, gender in your work and um, this kind of idea of optimizing the body and even the way you went on as this uh, inventor on, on television, but you would always kind of uh, queer the business suit and, you know, making these funny business suits with a midriff or just make them strange. Um, like already you were kind of starting to comment on gender um, in the 80s before you transitioned. And uh, how has that connection kind of shaped your work? Uh, well, I don't, one thing that happened, um, I was, I guess you would say, an oversect male youth, <laughs> a teenager. I never quite outgrew that. And uh, when I got to be in my late 40s, I thought, you know, I'm kind of tired of having this powerful influence in my body. I looked at it as something that was just nature's way of keeping a species going, you know, to give men all this testosterone. And men have, on average, 10 times the testosterone of women. And that's what produces this X drive. And I thought, I wonder if, what would happen if I took some estrogen just to soften that a little bit. I'd rather not have that be such an influence and such a distraction in my life. So I ended up going out on Hollywood Boulevard one night in October uh, in the mid-80s and finding um, uh, the term transgender didn't exist yet, but a cross-dress hooker. Uh, there was one section right near Vine Street in Hollywood where uh, there were several usual, um, usually um, people in that uh, uh, mode, I guess, and uh, I paid her to, to uh, sit down and talk to me at a, little, at a bus stop right there and tell me something about estrogen, and I ended up getting some from a black market source, and after two or three weeks, it did exactly what I was hoping it would do. It just sort of softened that edge of the sex drive and, and gave me more of a sensuality instead of just a pure sexuality, it sort of banded out in the periphery. So I did that and I said, okay, after uh, several years of that same black market source, I said, you know, I'm never going to go back. I, this is, I'm, not, I'm not, never going to go back to the way I was before. So why not um, make it permanent? So that was what it led to that. And also I thought, okay, my body's a, an appliance too. When I look in the mirror, it's like the inner self has stepped out and is uh, examining the outer self, almost like I'm sitting in a car. I mean, the organic part is inside the car, but when when the car is driving, the two are, are one, really. It's But if the car starts to act up, then the inside one becomes aware of that and starts taking action. So uh, that's what I did. I looked at it and I said, well, you know, I'm, I've been given this unit 
to walk around in, to live in. I didn't pick it. It was uh, um, assigned to me to be a white uh, middle-class honky, um, six feet tall. Here I am. This is it. So what, what can I do with it? And so um, I thought people get tattoos and that sort of thing. That's the thing. And you can decorate it. You can put uh, makeup on. You can do all kinds of things to to give it, give it a different uh, effect. But um, the idea of actually changing it fundamentally became intriguing to me. And I also thought it would be interesting to do something that would destroy any kind of a comfort zone I might, might ever reach in my work. And this, again, was back in the 80s when transgender was still in the freak category. Um, and it was transsexual then. We didn't even, the term didn't even exist. So uh, I thought if I, if I had the surgery, then uh, I would always be a little off. And I saw that as a sort of career move because it would keep me, as I say, from ever settling into uh, a, a, a sense of everything is okay. I need that. You know, that's one reason I like LA. LA is not okay. It's it's off. It's not uh, sustainable. It's it's um, it grows at random in a random way. It doesn't have, make a lot of sense in many respects. And so my work was so important to me that I didn't want anything to distract from it. I didn't want to fall into a, a lifestyle that would uh, in any way inhibit that. If that makes any sense? Probably not. <laughs> In closing, I guess I, I wondered, uh, is there something that you are dreaming of making now? Is there something that you wish you could make now? Or do you feel like you'd like to go back through all the many ideas you've had over the last six decades and, um, and uh, choose from those? One thing, I had this idea for a show that I would like to do as a group show uh, called Signs of Life. And the idea is that, uh, I don't know if you saw in, the, in my show, the, 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 breathe, the uh, sleeping bed that breathes. Mm -hmm. um, well, that was um, actually derived from another work I did in, at the Stars Gallery uh, called uh, The Bowels of the Mind, which was um, uh, the whole idea process represented by a big breathing um, apparatus with a light bulb flashing over the top of it. And then I went to New York, and so we reassembled the, the uh, sleeping bed out of some of the um, airbags from that. But anyway, it would be, when you think of all the ways that things can uh, show life, obviously breathing is maybe the most essential one, but uh, sound, little uh, snoring, sweating, an odor, there are a whole lot of different ways, sensual ways that uh, coming to life can be you, you, they can be used to, resent, to represent uh, life coming. So signs of life would be a number of different artists, each one creating something that was a sign of life. And so some of them might be big extravagant things, and others might be a tiny object on, on a pedestal where you had to, I wouldn't see anything, what is it? But you get up close to it and you can, you can hear something or, or you can smell something or some, some, some uh, so I think I want to do that. I think that would be relevant because of the fact that uh, one thing, bringing things to life is ancient. It goes back way through all the earliest mythology and folklore, you know, genies and fairies touching something with a magic wand or 
and bringing, bringing an inanimate object to life. It's always been one of the earliest fascinations, I think, with, with human uh, spirituality, really. And yet it's going forward in the same way, same way the AI uh, thing, the whole idea of trying to recreate life, which uh, create a new form of life, which we can't stop. It's got its own momentum. And whatever one might think of that morally, there's no way it can be uh, slowed or, or uh, tempered. It's going to happen. And my thought is that we may even be creating our own um, replacement as a species. Mm. I've, I've thought that too. I've thought that too. Well, I'll look forward to your version before the others come. I, I actually, just one final thing. I did a thing in, in uh, Christopher Schwartz's um, Stars Gallery too last uh it was about last year it was that that was on that same subject it was a um, human prototype i made it out of mannequin parts and it was the idea was that the creator whether it's god you know whether it's an individual whether it's male female a group uh, it's just gas or whatever the creator is there has to be a creator everything has to have a creator every creator has to have been created it's another endless chain and uh, what if this creator that created the human race had uh, gone through a, a fairly uh, typical uh, design process and of trial and error and made several versions that didn't make the final cut? It just didn't work out. So I made that out of uh, mannequin parts. It had a hand <laughs> on your side and it had an arm coming up with the top with a cell phone in it and four legs, uh, two going one way, two going the other way. And uh, all that to me is a really interesting theme right now where th to try to speculate on what th where things are going. So uh, I think whatever I do in the future will have that uh, edge to it. But I don't know. I don't get too far ahead with my thinking. You know, I, I need to things to stimulate me. I don't, my ideas aren't, as I say, I avoid wisdom. Wisdom seems to me like an end point, like Mr. Natural and in um, R. Crumb's uh, Zap comics. Where Plaguey Food comes up and says, What does it all mean, Mr. Mr. Natural? And Mr. Natural just doesn't even look up. He says, Don't mean shit. <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I like um, uh, sound bites of knowledge, kind of, uh, that just give me an edge, give me a sense of it without really knowing what the thing is. So I don't want too much, <laughs> too much information on anything. And I'm waiting. For that to happen, as I say, this next generation hasn't yet started to make its uh, its own uh, identity aware uh, <clears throat> coming forth. Anyway, so I'm going to see what happens. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, um, thank you so much, Pippa, for speaking with us today. Okay. That was Pippa Garner. Her exhibition is called Immaculate Misconception, and it's on view right now at Joan. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.